0: So we're in a series called Catalyst. Uh, For the last few weeks now, we've been talking about that being a Christian means, in the present tense, ongoing, I am being changed. We actually charted this thing out a few times. That that if if you are a Christian, then that means at some point in your life, you met Jesus Christ. And when you did, if that's true of you, if you've accepted him as your Lord, if He smashed into your life, and you've trusted your life, your salvation, your death, your forgiveness of sins. If you've trusted him, then he promises that the Holy Spirit will come into your life. And we'll transform you. And the scripture uses grand language. From glory to glory. That we will be transformed. That we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That we will be more and more and more patient, kind, good. That, that our lives should look like this until the point of death. That we are being conformed more and more and more to Jesus until at the point of death he takes us to be with him, and we said that there's a problem with this. Though there's lots of problems with this. One, many, many Christians, their lives don't look like that. They're not becoming more like Jesus. They're not being changed, and that should not be. And the other thing we said is that the problem with this church is that a lot of people try and control it. And here's the thing: the scriptures are absolutely clear. You can't cause that. Like you can't make yourself like Jesus. Like that's asking something that you do not have the tools or equipment or the power to change yourself in that way. But it's not your job to make yourself like Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job, my job, is to open myself up to the one who can change me. And we've been talking about this for the last few weeks uh, in, in the terms of catalyst. What is a catalyst? You, you insert it into the equation, and it doesn't actually change anything. It just speeds up what's already happen, happening. That these catalysts, these four spiritual catalysts we've been talking about, they open up your life to the one who can change you, so that you are being transformed by him. So, just so you know, just to be absolutely obvious about this, these four catalysts just happen to correspond... ...to our church's strategy. You might have seen this before on our website... ...or out in the hallway or in our bulletin. That our strategy is that we are called to make disciples... ...that we are to help people become more and more like Jesus Christ... We draw it this way, that, that the cross is the, the beginning point of all of these things. That it's not us that change ourselves, but it's what Jesus Christ did in living a sinless life, dying on the cross, rising from the dead. And that when we accept that, it should change us personally. The word we use there is when we engage God personally. But it doesn't just change that, it changes our relationships to one another. That when we connect in accountable relationships, we're conformed to the image of Jesus. This one is a church that we serve, the verbiage we use is to serve and be served As the church, as Christ's body on earth, we serve. And when we serve, we're changed, and the last is to go into all the world. So today, we're just carrying this series on, and we're going to talk specifically about serving. Serving as a catalyst for spiritual growth. And let me say, when I came to this message, I had an agenda. When you came in, you can see my agenda. It's this little chart right here. My goal was really simple. I was going to preach this heartfelt sermon and at the end they were going to play the music you were like, oh, I want to be changed like Jesus so I'll serve in the nursery. Check. And then you turned it in. I wanted that so badly. I really, really did. I wanted every single one of these slots to be filled and I still do, just, just being honest here. But when I came to the text, I had a whole different agenda. So I'm going to preach the text today. And I say that to say, I still hope you fill that little chart out. Hope you guys serve. We've got lots of serving needs. But I'm going to preach what God said, not what I want. All right? Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. I know you guys have all been reading in Deuteronomy this week, and but, but just let me indulge you and, and remind you what Deuteronomy is all about here. It's been 40 years in the wilderness that God saved his people out of the land of Egypt, and he sends them through the wilderness. And after 40 years of eating what's it, manna, they, they now come and they're getting ready to cross the Jordan into the promised land. And what does God do? He, he sends Moses up to preach a great sermon. That's what scholars think. The book of deuteronomy is it's a sermon where he's going to remind them of all that god has done for them over the years and calls them to live in relationship with god and and if you were here a couple weeks ago you'll know that we talked about this story this story of these ancient tribal people being saved by some yahweh some hebrew god is not just a story of salvation it's the story of salvation That if you want to understand how God saves people, then you need to go back to the Exodus. You need to go back to the wilderness. You need to go back to this time of Moses. And you need to reread that because it's the story of how God took a people who were enslaved to a wicked king, just like we are, under his authority. And God, by his own power, because of his great love for them, came after them saved them out, and by the blood of a lamb, the Passover feast, the Passover lamb, he saved them out, brought them through the waters of baptism that they identified with the representative Moses, and then he smashed the waters of the Red Sea behind them, and there was no turning back. That you're now saved. You can never go back to your old way of life. You're a different person, a different name, a different king. And then for 40 years, he led them day and night through the wilderness, feeding them, providing them, and testing them. And then we come to the end, the promised land, which brings us to chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and, uh, and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you are with a large cities that have walls up to the sky. Here's what he's saying. It's coming. Like all those promises that we talked about way long ago, those promises that you heard about in Egypt when you're still in slavery, those promises are about to take place. You were slaves to a wicked king named Pharaoh, but you've been set free and God is going to give you the promised land. Now before we get there, Moses is going to say, let's make a couple things clear. See, you're going to get there and you're going to enter into this promised land and you're going to sit in a home that you didn't build. And you're going to be drinking some wine from vineyards you did not plant. And you're going to be in a land of milk and honey. Which we don't use that terminology. But that means you are going to be living the great life. Like you're going to be fat and happy. And when you're sitting there, you're going to face a temptation. You're going to be tempted to think that the reason God blessed me is because I'm so great. Look at verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. You know why God blessed me? Because I've done so many great things for him? Because I'm such a good person? No. <laughs> it is on account of the wickedness, wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Now that, there's a whole theology there that we can talk about sometime. But I just want to point to one thing. Two more times, God's going to point out that the reason he's blessing them has nothing to do with their righteousness. Watch the following verse. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land. Verse 6. Understand then, are you hearing me, that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is going to give you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. God's gifts are not based on your performance. Church, do, do you hear this? That God's blessings, the stuff you have, the house, the family, the, that they are not performance-based bonuses. Your salvation, even heaven, has nothing to do with your righteousness Church, do you hear me here? God's gifts are not based on our performance. God does not give us good gifts because we are good. He gives us good gifts because he is good. In no way did God owe them the promised land, and in no way does God owe you. We can just stop there. Let's connect this with serving, because that's where Moses is going to go with this. He's going to go right from this conversation to serving. So let's talk about serving. There is a temptation to believe, Christians, that if I serve God in some extraordinary way, like if I give a bunch of money and and show up early and do logistics, and I put up with all Paul's stuff and clean up eggs after him, if I help out, if I serve in the nursery, then God owes me. Then God has to bless me. Then God has to give me all this good stuff. And that sounds fair, like God, I'll serve you, I'll do my part, but then you have to do your part. You have to keep my job intact, you have to give me a good house, my kids need to get A's and be on the varsity team. Like, we might not say it this way, but when life falls apart, when you lose your job, when your kids get sick, when they don't do well, when your home crumbles, when you can't pay for things, when instead of driving that new SUV you want, you're driving the minivan... How easy is it to become disillusioned with God and think, God, but do you know what I've done for you? So at the end of this section, after chapter 9, this section goes from chapter 9 all the way through the midsection of chapter 10. And at the end of this section, Moses is actually going to point this out in 10 verse 14. He says, to the Lord your God belong the heavens and, and the earth, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Okay, what does this have to do with serving? His point is this. God owns everything. There's nothing that you can give God that he doesn't already own. There's nothing that you can do for God that he couldn't do much better than you. God doesn't need your help and he doesn't need my help. Yet, the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. He chose you and their descendants above all the nations as it is today, it is by sheer grace that he chose you. He loved you. He invited you into a relationship with him. He allowed you and me to be part of what he is doing in the universe. Let's put it this way. We do not serve God so that he will bless us. That doesn't work. We serve God because he has blessed us. Do you hear the good news in that? This, my friends, is the difference of the gospel and something terrible. Like if you think that we serve some, some God who, who's constantly telling us, you got to do this and you got to do this to make me happy, then you're serving a wicked king like Pharaoh. But we serve a God who loved us and says, now I invite you to serve me. In the next section of this text, The author, uh, Moses, is actually going to give us a detailed reminder of just how desperately this is true. That you did nothing to deserve what God gave you. You did nothing to deserve God's love. In fact, he's going to go through this whole section where he says, basically, um, do you remember that time when God loved you and he really wanted to be in a permanent relationship with you? And he wanted this thing called a covenant. And so he sent me up that mountain to get the Ten Commandments and all that. And then when I came back down, you were worshiping a cow? Do you remember that? Do you know how wicked your heart is? And yet he loved you. Just as an aside, Moses will spend almost an entire chapter here devoted to showing them how bad they are. Aren't you glad God didn't include a chapter of your life in the Bible? If he did, what, what do you think he'd write in there for you? Moses is going to give us a word picture of what this looks like. He says, you're a stiff-necked people. I'm guessing that uh, not many of you have actually worked a pair of oxen and hand-plowed a field. Anyone? You know? No? So, and I'm guessing that if, if we really explored this a little more, um, not many of you have been asked even to consider ancient Near Eastern horticultural and agricultural practices. Being... As that is, thou shalt know thy plow is my statement for today. That there is a great benefit. Why it really helps if we would all go hand plow a field before we read our Bibles. And let me tell you why. Because from that one image of hand plowing with oxen a field, we're going to find this whole slew of biblical word pictures, of metaphors. That if you want to understand the Bible, you need to understand your plow. Just, here's a few of them. Your stiff neck comes right out of that. Do not be unequally yoked. Have you ever heard that? Do not put your hand to the plow and look back. My yoke is easy. Jesus' invitation to us. And why are you kicking against the goats? If you take this, if you take just the the phrase stiff-necked, that happens some 40 times in the Old Testament, you add all of these up, there are going to be over 100, 150 references to hand plowing a field with oxen in the Scriptures. That If you want to understand the Scriptures, you have to understand this. So... As excited as you all are, indulge me for a moment. This right here is an image from 2,700 BC, Egypt, and this is um, early, kind of a prototype of plowing right here. And remember, they were captured by the Egyptians. The Egyptians were kind of the first ones who started hand plowing. Here's an updated version. This is actually from the 16th century, and it says, "God speed ye plough, send us corn enough." So, you got a field, you got to plan it, right? So, what do you do? Well, you go out to the barn and you pick out a good pair of oxen. Now, what makes it a good pair is that they should be, they should be about equal in size and stride. And you're going to take this big hunk of wood and you're going to lay it over their shoulders. It's called a yoke. And you yoke the two oxen together. And you want them to be equally paired so that when they walk, they walk in stride together. They're, they're together in everything they do. And then you're going to connect that to this big contraption that is the plow. And the plow, when you come up behind it, it's got this little shovel that goes into the ground. And the guy who's going to work the plow, he steps on the back of it. It digs the shovel in. And then he calls to the oxen to get it moving. And you're asking, Paul, how could you possibly know this much about hand plowing? Believe it or not, I grew up on a farm and my father owned one. Yes, I am more than a pretty face. So, (laughs) it's amazing what God uses to help me read the Bible. So, So, you do that. And then here's the key, though. You're going along, the oxen. Oxen are generally gentle, ignorant, docile beasts. But occasionally, you'll call out, and they'll decide, I don't want to walk anymore. Or, I don't want to go where you're going. Now, what do you do when a 600, 700, 800-pound ox doesn't want to listen to you? Well, let me tell you, you you can try and reason with it. You can explain. Without your great strength, I can't plow the field, and everyone will starve. Oh, woe is me. But that generally doesn't go very well. No, in order to speak the language of an ox, you take a large stick, what they call an ox goad. You take a really big stick with a big sharp point. And you say, I said move. That's right. And that's the language they speak. Now, if you have an ox that is particularly stubborn though, what you will find is that as you do that, as you poke them in the neck or poke them in the rear to get them to turn, they will, rather than move, they will tense up. They will stiffen their neck and refuse After blow, after blow, after blow, they will refuse to take direction. And let me tell you, an ox that never learns to take direction from its masters. Do you know what you call that? Hamburgers. (laughs) Hamburgers is what you call it. If that stiff-necked beast is ever going to be useful... It has to be broken. It has to be broken of its wills and its desires. It has to trust its master. Now why? Why do you think Moses would point to this image to describe God's people? Why do you think, why, oh why, do you think Moses would compare God's people to a stubborn beast that refuses to obey its master, refuses to obey its voice, that needs to be beaten regularly and still stiffens itself against what God has in store? Do I really have to explain this? Okay, let me... um. Some of you are new. So in order to save us some time and save a visit to my office, let's go through one thing real quick. Um, Sometimes in life, it feels like God is beating you. But he's not. I mean, Job, Naomi, Paul, Jesus. I mean, you can think Jeremiah. I mean, you go through the Bible. It is full of people who suffer and, and on no account of themselves... They're righteous before God and their suffering has nothing to do with what they've done. They just suffer. And the Bible's full of stories of, like that. So sometimes it feels like God's beating you and he's not. But sometimes it feels like God's beating you because he is. Is that, is that okay to say? When we insist on going our own way. When we refuse to listen to his voice. And we're headed towards our own destruction. If he loves us. He will do whatever it takes. To change our direction. Proverbs put it this way. The Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father. The son he delights in. That if God loves you. He will not let you go your own way. If God loves you. He will do whatever it takes. No matter how much pain it takes. To change your direction. We need to be broken. To be useful. We need to be broken of our will. We need to be broken of thinking that we know better than God. We need to be broken. In order to be useful. So after that section. This is where God then goes in to describe exactly how they're stiff necked people. In chapters not, chapter 9 verse 7 through 10, 11. And. For your sake, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time beating you up. Maybe I'll do that on another Sunday, but not this Sunday. You're lucky. We're going to skip right over that, and we're going to go to the meat of the text, which is in chapter 10, verse 12. And now, after he's told you all the reasons why you don't deserve God's love, you don't deserve to be called a servant of God, you don't deserve to be part of his family, you don't deserve any of this, and yet he loved you anyways, now we're going to talk about this. And now, O Israel... What does the Lord your God ask of you? This is the meat of it. This is it. This is what we, we've wanted to know here. This is what is it that God wants me to do so that I can be up and to the right. So I can be conformed to his image. So I can be the person that he's calling me to be. And he's going to list five things here. He says, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him... To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. There's, there's five things in here. You see it? Fear, walk, love, serve, observe. But may I suggest to you, there's five things that we need to do here. But he's going to say, really, if you, may I suggest to you, along with like, every biblical scholar who's ever commented on this text. He says five things. But he's really saying one thing. So, look at this for me. Walk in obedience. Serve the Lord. Observe all of his commandments. How how are those different? How would you differentiate those? What's the difference between walking in obedience, serving the Lord, and observing his commandments? And the answer is, I don't know. There's no real difference. That's right. There's no real difference. This is not three different things you need to do, but this is just a very Hebrew way of being complete. So you need to walk in obedience. Yeah, but what does that mean? You need to serve the Lord with your whole heart, but serving him, how? what, what does that mean? It means you need to observe his commands, listen and read what he said and do it. This is Moses' way of saying you can't get around this. It's absolutely clear. You have to walk in obedience. What does that mean? To serve him. What does that mean? To observe every word he says and do it. It's absolutely crystal clear that God wants us to serve, that we are called to be servants. But you notice I skipped over. He said, But Paul, there were five things. Why are you only listing three? You're right. There were two others out, out there, fear and love. And if you say, but Paul, these are qualitatively different. Like on the one side, walking, serving, observing. That's, those, are, those are things you do. Those are outward. Those are actions. And, and fear and love, those are affections. Those are inward. Those are what you think and feel and what's going on in your heart. Those are two qualitatively different things. And my point is, I'm pretty sure that's the point. That what you do outwardly and what's happening inwardly, Should match. That shouldn't be two lists. It should be one. What does God really want for us? What does God want to do to draw you, to make you more and more conformed to the image of God? What does He do? It's this that our actions will come together with our affections, that we would serve because we want to. That we would outwardly act in a way that represents what's truly happening inside of us, that we would be changed from the inside out. God wants willing servants. What does that mean? Let's let's put this together. Let's give the, the, the three words walk, serve, observe. It's clear God wants servants, but what does it mean to be a willing servant? And there's the key words there are fear is the first one. He wants us to serve because we fear him this is something we don't like to talk about much. Like, does God really want me to fear him? Jesus is my homeboy. And, uh, and yeah, he does. I mean, uh, we need to clarify this, right? I mean, God does not want us to fear him the way, um, you know, Saul part 27 that comes out, one of those cheap horror flicks. I mean, God doesn't want us to fear him like that. But if you look at the Hebrew word for fear, and this makes a lot of sense, it can sometimes be translated worship. Same word, fear and worship. There's a continuum between fear and worship that, that if a sinful person, someone who does not deserve the love of God, should enter into the presence of the one who created all things and controls all things and can kill me at any second, and I who can make him, he owes me nothing. If I were to enter into his presence. well, that's a terrifying thing. But here's the deal. When you enter into the presence of the one who can destroy you. Who's over all and controls all and knows all. And you have no secrets with him. And you have nothing to hang over his head. And there's no way to manipulate him or control him. He just is. When you come into his presence. All holy. All righteous. You also find that he's all loving. And he's all good. And when you meet the God who is all-powerful and all-good, the God who knows all your secrets and loves you anyways, that type of fear leads you to worship. And when you are there in His presence, when you fear Him, and not in some terrible way, but in a holy, awesome, He is God. When you come into His presence, what does Isaiah say? Woe is me, oh my God! Like, he could destroy me at any second. And that should lead us to say, I want to follow this God. Maybe he knows more than I know. Maybe he's better at directing my life than I am. God wants that type of servant. God wants us to serve not just because we fear him, though. The other thing is is we're commanded to love him. God wants us to serve because we love him. and And this is... This is one of those odd ones. Like fear, you can see it. But with love, can you command someone to love? I mean, God God obviously does. But can you do it? Okay, let's try it real quick. I want everyone, at the count of three, I'm going to have you look across the room at some random stranger. And I want you, at that moment, when I say go, to love them with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ready? One, two, three three go look did it work there's a couple singles in the back that I think it just did work for (laughs) no is the answer for most of us no that didn't work and the reason is is because love is not just something it's not just an act it's something not just something you do it's something internal it's in some ways something you can hardly control you can choose to act in a loving way. Listen, I grew up in the 90s. I know that love is a verb. Those of you who are my age probably know that reference. But but it's more than a verb, friends. Okay, so if I come home and Jenny says, you know, Paul, I've really thought about this. And uh, I haven't loved you in any way, shape, or form for years. I don't feel anything about you, but I've decided, because I'm a godly woman, that I'm going to act in love until you die anyways. I would be crushed. Like, do I want her to act in loving ways? Yes, but that would be so empty, so hollow. Like, I don't want your empty acts of love, I want your heart. This is what God wants. He doesn't want servants who are like begrudgingly, you got to do what I said. Oh, God said go to church. God said read the Bible. God said give away money. you got to do it. He wants people who love him. He wants your heart. It's not enough to act in a loving way with your spouse. And it's not enough for God. So... If we stopped right here and we talked through those things, walk, observe, serve. You might just think that God wants a bunch of servants, but that's not the whole picture. God wants our hearts, and he doesn't just want this because he needs glory, although this is all for his glory, but God wants us to serve for your own good. Look at this, all of this that's leading up. What does the Lord God want for you? He wants you to fear him and to walk in obedience, to love him, to serve him, and to observe him. And when you do that, it's for your own good. Let's be clear. When we serve, God doesn't need anything, as I've already stated. God does not need our help. He doesn't need our service. The whole point of the story of the Exodus is that if you think through it, what did the Israelites do? Let's see, God came in, He sent Moses, He he pulled them out, He did the plagues, He he did the Red Sea, and the Israelites' role as God saved them through everything was um, grumbling. God did all the work of saving them, of making them the people that He wanted them to be, and they grumbled. Do you understand? That's how God works. God does all the work. God does not need us to serve Him. The whole point is that it's for your own good. We need to serve God. Like, it's in our very nature, in our DNA. It's the way God created the universe. That everything is designed. That if you're not serving God, if you're trying to serve yourself, you're going to come up empty every time. This is where... Biblical values, Christian values, and American values just come crashing together. If you go out on the street and you talk about life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, like these core American things... You will find that the essential belief of, of being American, the American dream is to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, the when I want to do it. It's my inalienable right to do what I want, however I want. That's how we define freedom. That's how we define happiness. That The fundamental American commitment seems to be, I will always seek what makes me happy. So how do you choose what university you go to? What house you buy? What job you work, who you marry, where you send your kids to school, where you go on vacation. Which, whichever one makes me happy. And if for some reason one of those things, the school, the house, the spouse... If one of those things doesn't make me happy, there's something fundamentally wrong. I need to trade it out. Because life, the purpose of my life is to seek this commitment of my personal happiness, my personal freedom. And when we come to the scriptures, Moses is going to say, No, your life is not about that. It's about fearing God. Like a good ox, you need to walk in obedience. You need to serve God with your whole heart. You need to love him more than yourself. You need to observe every single thing he says, and you actually need to do it. And when you do those things, then you'll taste true happiness and true freedom. Your job in life is to be a servant, to be God's servant, to be willing and wholehearted in your service to him. That seeking your own freedom and happiness is the surest way to not find it. If you're not used to coming to GVF, you're probably used to those pastors who tell you how unimaginably valuable and precious you are and how lucky God is to have you. Sorry, you're at GVF. (laughs) You're like, I was happy before I came in here. What happened? Okay. The scriptures, though, just don't give us that picture. The happiness is not making you great. It's making God great. It's when you give up making yourself great that you can actually be happy. That you can actually be free from, from constantly chasing after your own desires which change and are fic, fickle and will destroy you if you just let them go forever. So in the Bible you're going to find this example. Paul, Jude, James, Peter, at least those four that I know of off the top of my head. When they describe, when they self-describe, like who are you? What is your role? Do you know what they call themselves? It's not just servant. It is slave. Doulos. Bond servant. So Paul, who are you? I'm Paul. Slave of Jesus Christ. James, who are you? I'm, I'm James. Slave of Jesus Christ. Peter, who are you? I'm slave of Jesus Christ. Jude, who are you? I'm the slave of Jesus Christ. That I'm Christ's slave. I don't own anything. Everything I have is his. I don't own my own life. I'm not responsible for it. He is. I don't direct my own life. My constant prayer is not my will, but yours be done. I don't pursue what makes me happy. I pursue what makes him happy. My whole life, my job, my marriage, my house, my church is about him. And I'm his willing, wholehearted servant. Why? Why why do they want to be his slaves? And let me me suggest to you, because, because they know who God is. So when I was in Dallas, um, worked at a church, and we had this big program. We were going to say, we're going to get everyone involved in serving. And this is when I first started out in ministry, didn't even know what I was doing. And, and uh, I was like, great. And my whole job was to get everyone involved in serving at the church. So I went out there, and this is how we did it. We said, okay, every single person, going to fill out this little personal assessment. And it's going to say, what would truly fulfill me if I did all these things? And then you came to church and you showed up and said, oh, this is what I'm good at and how I should serve. And the church, your job then, the church's job, was then to run around and and create these positions so that people felt fulfilled when they served. And I'm like, after doing that for about nine months, I realized that things were entirely backwards. That we've even turned service itself into something that's about me. And about me using my gifts so that I'll feel good about myself so that God will somehow owe me. But that's not it at all. The whole point of serving is that it's not about me. It's not about my gifts. It's not about how I get used or how I feel needed. It's about Him. And when we serve like that, we're changed. I think the Apostles and prophets knew this and lived this because Peter was the one who was there that night when Jesus came into the upper room and took off his outer garments and he got down and he washed his feet. I mean, I I think the reason Paul was this way, because when in Philippians chapter 2, you read that he knew that Jesus, he had met him. That Jesus, the very God of very God, not only humbled himself to foot washing, but humbled himself to death on a cross. And that when he did that, God exalted him. He saw that victory came through dying to self. Victory came through humility. Victory came through service. Life came through dying to yourself. That if you want to be useful to God, you got to be broken. All these people, Moses, Paul, Peter, Jude, James, the apostles and prophets, they know our God and our God, his name is Jesus, is his servant. That when God wants to show himself in his full glory, when he wants to be most fully known, how does he show up? He shows up as a humble servant who prays, not my will, but yours be done. Who in serving God, serves others to the point of even death. There are lots and lots of ways to apply this. I mean, this whole idea of what Jesus did in foot washing. I mean, obviously, there's lots and lots of ways. Remember, we have our little list. You can check a box Once a month you can come serve in logistics or you can serve in children's ministry. And I want you to do that. I really do. But I want you to hear this. Checking a box and serving once a month is not my heart and is not God's heart. God doesn't want you to do something for him. He doesn't need you to do something for him. He wants your heart. He wants you to love him and fear him. And because you've been blessed by him, because you believe the gospel, then you want to be just like his son. That you actually believe that the best possible life is the life that Jesus lived, which is the life of a servant that was not about him, but was about God. Every day. Every day. Every day.